So we're starting, this is the first week of a three-part series called In His Image. Say that with me. In His Image. We, human beings, people, men and women, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, we are made in His image. Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, isn't it odd to think about somebody being made fearfully? Well, that word just means to be, it's, you, you, you are made wonderfully complex. You are not just a body. You are not just your emotions. You are not just your intellect. You are not just a spirit. You are all of those things. And when things go well in your spirit, right, that has a virtuous effect on what happens in your relationships and in your emotions and in the wisdom or your understanding in your mind and also in your body, right? We have scriptures as your soul prospers, so then every your body prospers. Like there are scriptures that, that alert that. But also, how many of you know that when you're sitting on the floor in your bathroom throwing up, you don't feel very spiritually strong? Right? When things don't go so well for you in a moment in your body, they have an effect on how strong you feel in your emotions and your intellect, and spiritually. Good things and bad things, when they happen in, in different parts of you, in areas of you, they have a virtuous or a damaging effect, and that's because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are an amazingly complex creation. Amazingly. This is one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken. I am, I am not a photographer by training, um, but this is one of my favorite f photos that, I, that I've ever taken. And that's, that's Aaron, um, my, older of, my older son when he was six or seven, um, standing in the waves, and then his younger sister, Abigail, um, when she was about probably four, um, standing just behind the waves, and Joshua, our youngest son, wasn't even born yet. And this was at um, uh, a beach in Cayucas. And the reason you could look at it, and on the surface you say, oh, well, that's, that's a, a nicely, nicely composed image, right? I mean, the focal point is right, you know, three quarters or two thirds of the way. Um, and there's about as much happening on the top as on the bottom. And there's like, there, it's, ni it's nice composition. Um, I didn't do that really on purpose. It just, you know, when you take a thousand photos in one day, sometimes one of them, you know, you hit the jackpot. Um, but the composition is not what makes it my favorite photo. What makes it my favorite photo is all of the layers of meaning that it has for me. See, as a father, I can see the footprints of my children running out into what's unknown, what's vast. I can see my son totally, like, 
amazed at the bigness, the power, the light, and the warmth of the sun. And in that, right, the sun and the ocean are the two most, uh, um, two most, two of the most amazing illustrations for how we can we can get a sense of the bigness of God. Right, the you can't even look at the sun without it burning your eyes. Uh, Jesus and and in scriptures we see no one can even look or look face to face into the face of God because we would be blinded. Uh, Jesus said he is like the sun rising with healing in his rays. Right, those are his rays. The, the bigness, the power, the light, the warmth of God that we see in the illustration of the sun. And also the ocean. The ocean as a deep and mysterious and almost unimaginable depth. And you can see that even in that, you see my, my son's budding masculinity and boyhood he is leading the charge into what could wipe him out very quickly. And he's getting into the ocean, whereas my daughter is hanging back to see, is this really going to work out? Um, and he's, he's arms out, right? And that's why boys, that's why men don't live as long, <laughs> right? We... She's looking at my, her older brother and says, I'm, I don't know how long you're going to make it. <laughs> right? He's, he's taking, and we, we see that even in the, his masculinity, right? And at a very young age, he is pioneering. He's stepping out. He's getting into trouble, into danger. His, his, luckily, he runs a little hotter, so he doesn't get quite as cold when he's in the when he's in the ocean, and yes, this life, if generally speaking, he will expire and graduate to heaven, his body will expire sooner and he will graduate to heaven sooner before his sister, not just because he's two years younger, but because of the way she's made. And there's beauty in that. Now, masculinity and femininity have been... Um, the subject of much contention and argument and difficulty and pain and trauma and um, all kinds of philosophies and ideologies and things. Like the, the culture has tried to unravel the complexity of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. They, and, and cultures throughout ages have, have thought and philosophized many different ways. And the reality is, is that at, at a very plain and simple look, right, you can tell biologically the difference between a male and a female, but that's not the whole story. We are not just body parts. We, as complex as I find the meaning in this photo is not about its composition. So when you look at a man or you look at a woman, there are things about us that are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully complex. You know, what we call complex in this world. There, there are things like that people have made, right? Uh, and so, so some things that we might think are complex are like the Tesla, the self-driving car, um, a microchip or supercomputer, or what, what else might, uh, what are some other things that, that people, man has made 
that might we, we think of as complex. Okay, the International Space Station or the Hubble Telescope. Great. Generating, thank you, Rick. I love engineers. I come from a long history, a family of engineers. So yeah, I still don't understand electricity. But well, yeah, we'll go into it. Yeah, power generation. But what I would say, and, I, and I've even walked with my brother-in-law, who is, um, uh, for, for many years, was the uh, director of nuclear services out at Diablo. And in walking through all of the different engineering, the, the systems that it takes to produce um, nuclear energy to where you can, you, you know, uh, the, the water cooling and uh, how all of the inner workings of ions and energy and heat and transmission and alternating current and direct current, all that stuff, right? All of those, all of the things that people make that seem complex are actually just multiple layers of very simple systems. See, the things that we make are actually rudimentary and simple, even if we layer them over and over and over and put them tightly together, make them very small. They seem complex, but really they're just many layers of simple systems. But what we call a simple life form, like a bacteria or a virus or an amoeba or something like that, is actually a complex and perfectly integrated creation. See, when God made us male and female, that is a summary of a very complex reality. Um, now, the problem is that the cultures of this world, as I alluded to, have so distorted what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman that we, in many cases and in different areas, we've lost our way. And we've lost the ability to use the compass of scripture as it was intended, not as something to beat people up with or to yell at them through, but as a way of training our hearts humbly to see and understand much about God and much about us as his created, his beloved creation. And so part of our pitfall, right, is we fail to discern God's image of man from man's image of himself. And we have become so accustomed to the pollution of our culture around us that the pure sometimes seems foreign. Like we look at passages of scripture and we think, There's, that seems foreign to me. That's not my everyday life. That's not my everyday experience. I know nobody has had, I know nobody has had that, ex that experience. I have. Um, and our response to this angst, this, this, how do we navigate the polluted or the pollution, the confusion of our culture? How do we navigate that? Um, and our response to this angst, this, this frustration, this fragmentation, our response actually is also very fraught with danger. And I see two, there's probably other pitfalls, but I see two that come up a lot. On the one hand, many people just give up. We just, we give up. We self-select and omit portions of scripture. We, want, we pick a few verses that we really like, um, and some that we either don't understand or make it very hard. We don't understand how it applies to us or to our life or to our friends. Um, we self-select and then we don't read other portions. And in that process, we are adopting a worldview with fewer social consequences. Because our worldview does have social consequences. I know none of you have ever been made fun of for what you believe. 
or because of relationships with people that don't believe the way you do, whom you love and care for deeply, you have shied away from living heartbroken or with your heart breaking over someone close to you or people close to you because it's just too hard. Right? We, it's easier to have a worldview with fewer social consequences. And on the other hand, I see some believers, they appear to really just want to hunker down for a fight. Grab hold of a slogan and yell at the world to stop being stupid. Seemingly unaware that this behavior really is not... It violates Christian character. And both of these, really at its root, are just plain old garden variety selfishness. It's selfish to say that I am not willing to live in a relationship that's breaking my heart because of my own comfort. It's too hard. Now, I understand. I have, I have fallen prey to that before. And it's also selfish to say, this is too messy. I'm going to stay over here and put my slogan on a sign. That's too messy. Actually, relating and trying to navigate these relationships is too messy, and I feel anger bubbling up, and I'd rather just stay back here with my sign. And the sign may be your proverbial, it may be an actual sign, or it may be just the ticker tape, the signs that you are raising in your heart. We need to renew our minds to the word. And not just the black and white text, but we need to renew our minds to what the word brings us in terms of, its of, of the word's understanding of our God and of ourselves and recognize that the pursuit to rightly apply these truths, that pursuit is lifelong. You won't get it in a minute. You won't get it from a slogan. You won't get it from a sign. You won't get it by flipping through it a time or two. It's lifelong. Because we are not simple. God is not simple. Now the gospel is simple to receive, but it's very complex and hard to walk out. Right? And, and that's why you can, you can distill down something that you see like he made us male and female and say that is a simple truth. And it, in, in essence, it is. But there is far more complexity about how he made us than if we just allow our understanding to be comfortable with what's simple. We need to adopt a stance and a posture that is first and always humble before Scripture and always humble before our brothers and sisters in Christ and before the world and before our neighbors. We don't have it all figured out. And that is not to say, to violate or say that the simple truths or the summary of those complex realities are not true or to always be questioned. I'm not saying that. I am saying that we don't have ourselves all figured out. We don't have God all figured out, and we certainly don't have all of the ways his truth applies to our culture all figured out. So stay humble. 
If, I, if you get nothing else from this, stay humble before the scriptures. Stay humble before your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stay humble before the world because God truly gives grace, gifts. He moves grace upon you in your humility and he resists your pride. So let's renew our minds just for a few minutes on the origin of manhood. Today we're going to look at manhood Next week, we're going to look at womanhood and especially at women in ministry in the body of Christ in the New Testament church. And the third week, we're going to look at loving in his image. What does it look like to love people and and especially our neighbors who are not going to church with us, who are not reading the Bible and trying to understand what's in it? who are just simply trying to navigate their own social world and, and find a good job and find a good mate and, and plod through the, the culture of this life, who are navigating that, what does it look like to love people where they are with a humble heart? So let's look at this scripture. We're going to look for manhood. You get Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. You can turn there in your, in, if you have your Bibles with you. If not, I will read it on the family Bible. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or Isha in Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so the question is, what is manhood from this text? And I would offer to you, this is not a comprehensive thing of all that man is or what masculinity is or what manhood is, but this is a beginning of things that we see very early in the scriptures in perfection, right? This is before the fall. And I think it is very illustrative about what it means to be a man. And so we're going to take, we're going to take a look at three commitments, or God tells and says three things to Adam or about Adam, and we're going to look at them here just for a few minutes. The first one is in verse 15, the first commitment that I see. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, I don't know, 
I can't hear you. To work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. To work it and keep it. The first thing that it means to be a man, really, is a commitment to God-honoring labor. Now, I know it might surprise you, but work is not part of the fall. Work is not part of the fall. Now, in chapter 3, we see after the fall, um, that's when it says, and the ground will be cursed, and you'll work it by the sweat of your brow and your toilet, and you'll hate it. Now, our attitude to work is part of the fall, but work in itself is not. We are not going to spend eternity on clouds. We're going to spend eternity co-laboring with Christ in the infinitely expanding creative power of God. Men of God are not idle. Adam was not placed in the garden to watch it become overgrown, but to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. Now, your work, your work might be picking strawberries or picking stocks. It might be running errands or running banks. It might be planting trees or planting churches. It might be writing memos or writing songs. It might be studying the building code or studying mathematical theorems. It might be fighting injustice at home or fighting in the military abroad. It might be caring for one child with autism or caring for a classroom of young people. But whatever it is, we were created to work. What it means to be a man in its very essence, is we are created to work and to keep, to work things and to keep them, to protect them, to work and, and nurture, like, and to, to grow it, to tend it, and to keep things and to protect them. Now, also in the book of Proverbs and in the New Testament, there's also some, uh, I want to share with you just some wisdom about um, uh, our attitude our heart attitude to work. Because God-honoring labor is not just your willingness to do a task or your willingness to study or your willingness to do something. God-honoring labor or honoring God in your work is a cultivation to love work, is to love the diligence that is required to do things well and to do them with excellence, and to do them and keep things protected and kept, even without supervision. Proverbs chapter 6, this is just verses 6 through 11. The writer of the book of Proverbs, he says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, you lazy person. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you rise from your bed? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands and hitting the snooze button for the eighth time. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. What we see here, what we get is, is that honoring God in our work 
is recognizing that we are, one, working with the Lord and for the Lord in everything we do, whether people see it or they don't. It's not requiring a boss to, to do things well. It's not requiring a captain to know what needs to be done on the ship. It's not needing a manager to know what needs to be done in the garden. I'd say, students, when you enter a class, are you seeking to truly develop mastery in the subject or doing the minimum to get the grade you want and not interfere with your social schedule? Different attitude. Both you may be willing to work, but one is a love for the work and what it does, like our relationship to it, and the other is a willingness just to get a box checked. And I've met many men who are just putting in their time to get their pension or putting in their time to get their this or to get medical for life or to get, you know, they're working for something, but they hate their job. Now, I'm not saying that all jobs are fun. That is not what this is saying. We are cultivating. We are to cultivate a love to be diligent in the work that we do. And on that, right, our value, I mean, uh, on one hand, you know, some men find or they draw their identity only from their career. And that's not what the scripture is inviting us to either. It's not inviting us to say, hey, you're earning God's love. Your identity is only in what you do. That's, that's not it. It's also not um, to escape responsibility. And because masculinity is not celebrated in our culture, and I'm not saying the way it was, because I'm not sure that it, godly masculinity was really ever celebrated in any world culture. But because um, masculinity has been, it essentially been, uh, the, the, the things about what it means to be a man are not celebrated in the way the Bible talks about. Men have essentially run to video games, run to drugs, run to fishing, run to whatever it is, run to sports. They've escaped and they are escaping, they are sitting on the sidelines because society doesn't seem to have any use for who they were made to be anymore. Diligence, though, was in perfection before the fall. Work was before the fall. And if we want to know and understand what does it mean to be a man, it, 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 even before other people involved, the very first thing God said to Adam, the purpose was is that he was looking for someone to work with. Amazing. Commitment to God honoring labor, to honoring God in work. The second is a commitment to God's law. Now, in verses 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So my question is, is was Adam, did Adam demonstrate his commitment to God's law in the garden? 
That's an easy one. It's not a trick question. The answer is no, because the fall happened, right? But I'm going to look at it a little bit in, in a little bit more detail here. How would we know if Adam was committed to God's law? Well, did he pass it on or teach it to Eve accurately? Because God formed Adam and he gave him the law. Then he formed Eve and Adam shared God's law with Eve. So we have the first round of telephone. Was what God said what Eve heard? This is a big deal. And I would say, early on in my Christian walk, um, I uh, relished in the fact that God made me to be a sacred cow tipper. And I'm warning you, I'm about to tip over a sacred cow. But I, with the most gentle heart, I don't want to push it over on anyone. So stand back, let it fall, and then you can laugh at it. Here is what Eve said. In, later in chapter 3, when she's talking to the serpent. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now compare that. Let me read it one more time, and then let me read you what God actually said to Adam. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now what did God say to Adam? He said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. What was added? Touching it. This, now you can see how Adam was thinking. Adam relayed to Eve, we can't eat of the fruit of this tree in the midst of the garden. And I'm so worried about that, you don't even touch it. And if you touch it, you're going to die. That is the very first example of the slippery slope argument. Now, the slippery slope argument goes like this. Okay, the Bible says to flee sexual immorality. Therefore, all sex is bad. We should never have it. The Bible says to not be gluttonous. Therefore, eating food is bad and we should never do it. The slippery slope says you should not eat of the tree of the garden. And by the way, God also said don't even touch it because you'll die. Something has been added to what God has said because Adam took God's law and he added to it in his own pride that that came before the fall, right? We see, and, we, you know, Adam apparently added something to what he told Eve. And so what are the results of the slippery slope argument? The results of the slippery slope argument is that Eve believed that when she touched this tree that she would die. 
Well, when she touched the tree, did she die? No. When that didn't happen, she ate. This is one of the many fall downfalls of slippery slope legalism. Slippery slope arguments that become legalistic of adding to what God said and making up extra house rules. When people find out that God doesn't back your house rule, they will learn to discredit his true rule and rebel. Don't add to what God said. What God said is enough. Now, the slippery slope argument, right, if... A little bit of lying is still lying. That's not the slippery slope argument. The slippery slope argument is adding to what God said out of fear or out of pride to protect people from themselves or to protect you from discomfort and interruptions. Manhood, in this formative sense, is a commitment to know God's law, to handle it reverently, and to share it accurately. Manhood is a commitment to know God's law, to handle it reverently, and to share it accurately. In this way, manhood, in its formative, in its perfect tense, is the responsibility of headship. Now, headship is not the domineering extreme patriarchy that some denominations have made it out to be where women are stupid and they can have no giftings and they have to have separate pulpits on stages and things like that. That is not, you don't get that from this scripture. What you do get is is that man was given the the law, right, the law in perfection and the, the commands of God and he was expected to know it, to reverence it, and to share it accurately. Because people, their obedience their, their life, their flourishing, their vitality was on the other end of their obedience. Now, a forfeiture of headship might look like this. A husband and wife are having marital problems or parenting problems. A forfeiture of headship in the man's heart openly blames the wife for all marriage and parenting problems, and then in his heart blames God. Because that's essentially what Adam did. He says, now Eve ate and gave this to me, and by the way, I'm mad at you. Why did you even give her to me? Right? Godly headship, headship is not focused on fault. It's not fault finding. Godly headship means laying down your life to be committed to God's commands, his law, to handle them reverently and to share them accurately. To love even as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. So I say, men, do you know the Ten Commandments? Like if I, if I ask, could you just get up and not out of just rote memorization, but do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you know them in your heart? Do you know that you should have no other gods before you? 
and what that means on a day-to-day basis? Do you know that even when you come to worship, you should not have other idols and images and distractions and things, whatever they may be, that stand between you and the altar and you and God's presence, that he wants to commune with you personally, directly and intimately? Do you know that you should not be casual or take his name in vain and, 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 and just use it casually as if it's just another expression of frustration? Do you know that you're not supposed to mess with a day set, a, set aside for Sabbath, not just to do nothing, but to reframe and recalibrate your mind and your attention, your wisdom, your heart understanding, and your heart to the things that matter, to rest really, and worship in God's presence. Don't mess with his name. Don't mess with his day. Do you know that you're supposed to honor your father and your mother, not just your biological parents, but to honor your spiritual mothers and fathers, those that have cared for you and helped you along the way? That you're not supposed to commit adultery or to violate the covenants that you have entered into. That you are not supposed to kill or to murder to take life, that you view life as being essentially and profoundly sacred in all its states? Do you recognize that you are not to take what is not yours, even if it's unattended? Do you realize that you're not supposed to give any room for deceit or confabulations, but to only rest and rely and speak and tell the truth in love and recognize that even if saying the truth makes life really hard and difficult and uncomfortable for me, God is worth it and is worthy of my reverence and he will be my defender. Do you know that you are not supposed to covet or want anything that is somebody else's? And let that take root in your heart. If you don't know the the most basic moral law outlined in the scriptures, how is it that you expect to share, not only to reverence God's law, but to share it accurately with those in your stead? Now, single ladies, I want to address you just for a minute. You need a husband who can nourish you in the scriptures and share them with your children. And until you have met a man who is qualified in character to help disciple you and your children, you have not met a man qualified to be your husband. Now, wives, this is not permission to get out your sharp elbow and go, it's not. My invitation is to grow in your commitment to God's law. But it is better to have no man than a bad one. Now the third one. The third commitment is a commitment to the priority of family. Now we see a shocking thing here in this passage. Kind of the rhythm of creation. God says, let there be, and there was, and it was good. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. And it followed this pattern until he made man. And he says something, well, astounding. He says, it is not good for man to be alone, to be the only one of his kind. Because 
in that, you are, the, the, man alone does not express the divinity, the image of God. It requires not only woman and man side by side to express that, but the relationship and the covenantal fabric that exists of the two of them together bound in, in not only in love, but in spiritually with the, with the expression of the Holy Spirit in that relationship, that is divine. That is made in the image of God. So are you saying that everyone should be married? No. There are definitely some who are gifted to be single for a season, others for a lifetime. Yet for most people, I would say, and I would argue that marriage is the preferred or the desired position for most people. Not everyone, and I'm not making a hard and fast rule out of one thing or another. It is a difficult and a godly call and a gift to be able to live your life devoted to the Lord without knowing the companionship of marriage. That is a hard and difficult call. And it's not for many people. And based on this scripture passage, I would also argue that every man should be trained and prepared to be a husband and a father. There isn't a separate standard for godly married people and godly single people. The prepared man can always use his training in the body of Christ. Now, our culture rages against this, and even the church does to some extent. Our culture tells young people to put off marriage as long as possible, like it's a plague of permanent captivity. No, I'm serious. I mean, even Michelle and I, we got married at 23. And if I had my way, we would have been married at 21. Before we graduated. Her dad didn't have that, did not share my optimism. He actually gave me a much longer timeline, um, which I respected. But we, uh, we were married at 23. And I remember people, both in the church and they kind of raised their eyebrows like, are you sure you're ready? Newsflash, nobody's ready. <laughs> nobody's ready. Now, that's not a license not to prepare, but nobody really is ready in the eyebrow-furrowing question. And you have to wonder, like, now that pressure is even greater. I mean... The, unintentionally, I think that we are telling or selling a bill of goods to young people that is really disastrous. We are telling young people to go out and suck all the joy out of life first and then find someone to give your leftovers to. This is backwards. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating adolescent marriage or any, I'm not, please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is, is that we need to prepare one another, we need to prepare young men to be husbands and fathers before students and career-minded people. And yes, those things are important. We also need to prepare women to be wives and mothers, not just students and career-minded people. And it's not as though those other things don't matter at all, but Really, the, the, the priority of the family is sacred in Scripture. Ah, but wait. Wasn't Jesus single?
Don't worry, I have a gotcha. Yes, he, he was, but he is engaged. And there is going to be a wedding. So Jesus, our ultimate model for manhood, right? Let's run him through these tests. He was totally committed to the work his father gave him to do, yes or no? Yes. Was that work easy? Did it require diligence? Did it require a love and a presence of heart day and night, literally to to sweat, to sleep, to pray early in the morning. Was it, was it, but was his love in his work? Yes. Okay. The second one. Was he totally committed to God's law? Totally committed to God's law. So much so he kept it perfectly and became for us the only, the the spotless, the sinless Lamb of God who did not transgress one part of the law and fulfilled its every nature to every dotted I and cross T. And is he totally committed to his bride and his family? Yes. Manhood starts with these three commitments. Commitment to God-honoring labor, a commitment to God's law, and a commitment to the priority of family. Prayer team, can you come forward? And I'm going to pray, and we're going to close. Heavenly Father, we renew our minds this morning to how wonderful you are and to how wonderful you made us. And God, I ask humbly, we, we ask humbly, Lord, that our minds would be renewed to these truths, not to write out or blot out anyone's experiences, their struggles, their difficulties. But God, that we would be renewed to your life and your love, your design, your creative excellence. And Lord, help us as a people, God, to walk humbly before you and to hold these truths in our hearts, not like a battle axe, but as a testament of life. Help us to navigate this culture, Lord, where so much of this seems foreign. Lord, that we would stay at home in your house and in your word and in your plan. In Jesus' name.